you might notice that today I am sitting. Uh, if you haven't noticed, today I am sitting. Um, there are some there are some topics that I feel like the most important and appropriate thing to do would be to just put as much focus as I can onto the text and the meaning and the and the teaching intended by the Holy Spirit, um, rather than taking any risk of um, distracting you from what the Holy Spirit of God would want to say to our church today. Today is one of those moments. Today also is a moment where, and I don't say this very often, um, but today uh, the disclaimer of my message is that some portions of it would be what you might consider PG-13. Uh, and so as we are uh, wanting to just continue in that level of maturity because of the text and the topics and some of the themes of our message today, we just want to make sure that you are aware that I'll use some words today that are incredibly appropriate for biblical teaching. Uh, but because of uh, the sinfulness of our world, uh, and even if I confess historically some of my own immaturity, there's been moments before in my life where I wouldn't have been able to sit in a sermon like the one I'm about to give to you today. Now, you're all way mature than I used to be, uh, much more so, uh, and so I think that we're in good company, but I just wanted you to catch, this might not be the sermon that you have your kids go back and listen to until maybe they're a little bit older, um, just because of some of the context. Now, as parents, I totally trust your judgment on that. You lead your children as you do, but I just wanted to give you a heads up. Is that fair? Um, okay, so that said, we're continuing our series through Ephesians today, um, but first I'd like to run an experiment, and you know, every time I sit down for a serious topic, this is certainly something that comes to my mind. Um, have you ever heard the expression, I'll see if you can complete it, uh, let's just see how many of us know it. Um, if I say, check yourself, you say, before you wreck yourself, right, okay. So we now know who used to listen to gangster rap, that's important for today. So as the great uh, mid-90s philosopher Ice Cube wanted us to understand, it is important that we check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. Um, that is not the title of my message today. Uh, I am, no, I thought about it, but I am utterly too white for that. So, Here's, here's what Ice Cube wanted us to know, uh, is that our actions have consequences, right? And foolish actions lead to destructive consequences. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. It's good, it's good, it works. Um, now, as it turns out, the Apostle Paul came up with that before uh, Ice Cube. Sorry, gangster rap fans. Our text today is in Ephesians 5. Let me read to you from verse 1, uh, and we're going to go to verse 5 today. We studied verses 1 and 2 last week, but just for context, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. But sexual, and this is our text for today, but sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For know and recognize this. Every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. 
So Paul challenges us really to, uh, if, if you would, check ourselves in three areas. Um, and the first one is this, that he, he challenges us to check our desires. Uh, look at your neighbor really quick and just tell them, check your desires. So uh, there, are, there are really three umbrella terms for what we might call malformed or sinful desires that Paul gets into here. And I'll just, I'll walk us through them and then we'll talk a little bit about what I think Paul is saying holistically uh, in this moment. The first one is that he says uh, that, that sinful desires, should, these sinful desires should have no place in our lives. And the first area is he, he wrestles or mentions uh, rather is sexual immorality. Uh, now, if you, if you are a student of the original language, you would very quickly discover that the word here that Paul uses is the Greek word porneia, which is the same, uh, it's the root for the English word that we use, pornography. Uh, porneia is uh, itself an umbrella term, and it covers uh, words like fornication or harlotry or idolatry, uh, Etc. Etc. The the likes. It's an umbrella term for, and and this is why it's a it's a good translation to refer to this as sexual immorality. Now, if you are a student of Scripture and you take uh, the teachings about sexual morality holistically, you begin to understand that Paul here is saying the same thing that he says in other places that Christ says, uh, and that is is written throughout Scripture. Uh, is that what we would define as sexual immorality would be any kind of sexual activity which takes place outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. Now, I would just want to pause right there and say I am aware of the cultural discourse that is attempting to redefine what marriage is. And I am not here to debate the cultural definition of marriage. But I would say to you clearly, succinctly, and without quiver in my voice or doubt in my mind that the biblical interpretation of marriage exists between one man and one woman. Anything other than that is what God would call sexual immorality. So, the question is not, does the Bible say anything about what marriage is and what is righteous and unrighteous in the eyes of God? The Bible is actually clear. And if you do any time studying uh, the arguments against the clarity of Scripture on sexual immorality, uh, then you find those arguments to fall flat very quickly. Uh, you simply need to study the, the actual meaning and original language of Scripture. Um, I do understand how tempting it can be in a world where we are so overwhelmed on media in every form, it's hard to watch a TV show now without being told, here's, how, here's what love and marriage actually looks like. Here's what purity and goodness and righteousness actually looks like. And you can choose to agree with the world. I would not even be slightly offended if you choose to agree with the world. But God would be. And so, so you have to decide, will you agree with the biblical definition of sexual morality and immorality, or will you choose to agree with the world's definition? I would simply remind you that Paul, at the beginning of Ephesians 5.1, says, be imitators of God. And last time we talked about this, we wrestled with the difference between imitating God and imitating the world. 
I empathize with you if it is hard for you to not agree with the definitions of the world, but this is your choice. And remember, God says to us, I've set before you a choice, life and death. I would that you choose life. It is always going to be your choice. But let's be clear. The Bible is actually clear if you study what the Bible actually is saying. Okay, so with that said, again, let me remind you, sexual immorality would be sexual activity of any kind that takes place outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. Uh, that, uh, that would include uh, the, the use or uh, viewing of pornography of any kind, uh, sexual activity that is, that is outside of the bonds of biblical marriage, uh, that would dig all the way down into your thought life. Uh, Jesus actually goes so far at one point to say, if you look at a woman with lust in your mind and heart, then you have sinned just as if you have actually slept with that woman. Uh, and men and women alike, especially in our over-sexualized culture, are just equally as susceptible as one another uh, to this being an issue and a temptation. Uh, please know that this would be the perfect time for us to insert Romans chapter 8, verse 1, which says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Please do not hear me making these definitions as an excuse for uh, us, the church, to tell you, the people, how terrible you are. That's not the goal, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, uh, but keep that, keep that in mind. Romans 8.1, keep that in mind as we go forward. Um, if at some point something I say to you this morning makes you feel bad, uh, be invited by the Holy Spirit to repentance and the receptivity of grace. Amen? Okay, so... That was probably the most difficult one to get uh, into because of the nature of our cultural discourse, but very, very important. We'll move a little bit faster on the rest of these. Um, uh, impurity is the second thing that Paul says. I, I think that we would understand as we study what Paul is saying here is that impurity covers both physical and moral uncleanness, or, or you might say unrighteousness. Um, think of your life uh, like, uh, like a sheet blowing in the wind. Uh, and any time that dirt gets onto that sheet, it makes that sheet dirty and needs to therefore be cleaned again. Uh, if your life is like that sheet, it is the cleaning that happens through repentance, confession, and receiving the grace of Jesus that keeps us clean and pure before God. But let's not make a mistake that uh, even as Christians, it is possible for us to once again become impure. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have said this to a group of Christians in a city like Ephesus. Uh, so th the biblical image of purity is rooted in the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. It's always pointed to that in the Old Testament and pointed back to that in the New Testament. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 1, for example, there's a prophetic promise where uh, it says, Come now, let's, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as snow. And then, of course, we know that Jesus fulfills that promise through his death on the cross and his resurrection on the third day. But essentially, Paul is speaking of any kind of sinful action that makes a person unclean or unrighteous before God. And then the third thing that he says is greed. Uh, this should have no place in your life if you are a Christian. Now, uh, this is uh, greed could be described perhaps as the intense or selfish desire for that which you do not have. 
the thing that isn't yours. Uh, it's often associated with money, but it can be also tied to uh, the desire for power or advantage or influence over another person. Um, young people are greedy for social media influence as an example of something that feels a little bit intangible. Uh, while you might be greedy for money, your children are greedy for followers. Uh, so it can go uh, in all sorts of different directions. Now, uh, while all of these topics, sexual immorality, impurity, and greed, uh, probably deserve their own sermon, they probably deserve to be unpacked fully, I think what Paul is actually doing here is tying a thread around these three umbrella terms so that we can be challenged and invited into a better way of living. Uh, remember that what he's saying in the end is that uh, we want to make sure that we receive the inheritance of Jesus and his kingdom. Uh, so that said, it's probably not going to be helpful for me to dig deeper into those subjects right now. Um, although I will say, if you have further questions about what does Life Church say about any specific topic that just came to mind over the last few minutes while I was talking, we welcome you to ask um, and to, to create conversation. In fact, our Wednesday night conversations here at the church have been so good um, that as we sit around and, and talk, uh, we end up just bringing up questions about the things that we say on Sunday. So that would be a, a good place for you to come and say, hey, you said a thing. What did you mean? Or what about this? We love that. Uh, so taken together, Paul is pointing to, and I used this phrase earlier, he's pointing to what we would call our malformed desires. Um, for these are desires for physical pleasure, desire for self-gratification, desire for posturing and power, and uh, the, the desire for influence, the, the desire for the things that we call the malformed desires because they would be desires that the world would want you to desire, or the devil would want you to desire, and not God. Now, as a side note, it would be really important for us to clarify that Paul is not saying that sex, money, and power are inherently evil. Uh, but rather he takes issue with our desires that drive us to pursue these things outside of God's intention and desire for our lives. You can have money, but if money has you, then you have a problem, right? And that would apply for every other issue that he mentions here. So the problem is that our malformed desires ultimately lead us away from God. Think with me for a moment, uh, if you could imagine, I've already asked you to think that your life was a, a bed sheet flapping in the wind. Now imagine that your life is like a sailboat. Uh, this is helpful for us to talk about our desires. Um, if your life is like a sailboat, here is the reality, is that your life has a sail, and that sail is being uh, filled with the wind of whatever it is that you desire, uh, or whatever it is that is leading your life. So if your ultimate desire is money or sexual gratification uh, outside of God's pla plan and pleasure for your life, and dare I say even to our married friends in the room, that if you are married and your ultimate desire is for sexual gratification, even with the context, within the context of your marriage, your ultimate desire should still be God, Right? Uh, anyway, anyway, again, another sermon entirely, but whatever it is that you desire and the actions you take to fulfill those desires is what is leading your life or moving you towards your ultimate destination. And Christian philosophers would actually 
proposed to us that the, the ultimate destination of our life is the thing that we actually love the most. In other words, you are always moving towards the thing you love more than anything else. There's a guy named James K.A. Smith who writes one of my favorite books uh, on this subject. It's called You Are What You Love. And he argues that each of us has built a life whether you're a Christian or not, no matter how long you've been a Jesus follower, that each of us has built a life that is directed towards what we ultimately love. And that destination is, is known as your telos, T-E-L-O-S, telos. Telos is a word that means ultimate object or aim. In other words, you're all sailing towards some kind of land, and that land is the place you actually want to be. And you will get there. You will get to wherever you ultimately want to go. And hopefully, the invitation is that where you ultimately want to go is into the kingdom of God. And so you would frame out your life in such a way that you are blown by the leadership of the Holy Spirit through disciplined actions that are righteous and holy towards the kingdom of God. So this is actually reinforced in the way that Jesus speaks to people. There's an encounter that, that Jesus has with some of his early disciples. And um, James K.A. Smith in that book I mentioned, You Are What You Love, he actually has a little bit of an excerpt on that. He says this, James, Jesus doesn't encounter Matthew and John or you and me and ask, what do you know? Or he doesn't even ask, what do you believe? He asks, what do you want? This is the most incisive, piercing question Jesus can ask us precisely because we are what we want. Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of the human person. Thus, Scripture counsels in Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. So Smith and, and Paul and Jesus are all inviting us to wrestle, not so much with getting bogged down in our actions, but with our desires. Because our desires, what's in our heart, will ultimately come out and lead us in a direction. By the way, Paul's already pointed to this in Ephesians chapter 2. We studied this a couple of months ago. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. In other words, you were once dead in sin and led by the devil. We all too previously... Uh, lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Now, when the early church fathers studied this passage in Ephesians chapter 2, they actually highlighted and, and they, they zeroed in on what they began to refer to as the three enemies of the soul. And they said that the three enemies of the soul that Paul talks about here in Ephesians 2 are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, we've kind of stopped talking about them in those terms, but, uh, but it would be wise of us to bring that kind of language back. We have three enemies of our soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And a lot of us make God's word the enemy of our soul because it makes us so uncomfortable, but the reality is that the word of God is our saving grace that points us to uh, the ultimate savior, 
Jesus himself. Uh, now, keeping going, focusing on the flesh, uh, James actually warns us in James chapter 1 that each person is tempted when he is drawn away and, enti- and enticed by his own evil, key word here for the day, evil desire or malformed or sinful desires. Then after he des- his desires are conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. And then later in James 4, he writes even more about the fallout or the result of our malformed desires. And he says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions or desires that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because what you ask, because you ask with wrong motives, or desires, that so that you may spend it on your pleasure. So our malformed desires result in wars and fights around us and also within us and make us the enemy of God, and they also leave us with unanswered prayers. And so Paul challenges us by saying that sexual immorality, impurity, or greed umbrella terms for malformed and malformed desires they should not even be heard of among you as is proper for the saints instead then he proposes a fix because paul is a good teacher he says don't do this instead do this instead he says uh, do what is proper for the saints that's the implication so what is proper for the saints uh, well, I would propose that what, what would be proper for the saints is to be led by the Spirit of God, not by our own desires. Galatians chapter 5 breaks this down really nicely in, in verses 16 through 21. Paul, again, he writes this, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. I mean, can it get any more clear than that? Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, listen to the themes he brings up. You are, now un- you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, adultery, sor- uh, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. These, these things, by the way, are connected to impurity and greed as well. Selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not, he's going to bring in the same language that he uses in Ephesians, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean will not ever be welcomed at church. It doesn't mean will not receive grace if you repent and change your lifestyle and begin to agree with and live according to the teachings in the Word of God. But if you refuse to agree with Scripture and with God's standard and live, as he says in Ephesians 5, live as is proper for the saints, then the ultimate telos of your life will not be to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I want to be clear. This is uh, proper living for the saints is not simple behavior management or modification. 
This is not legalism pointing you to make sure you have a list and check it off every single day, otherwise you don't get into heaven. This is about following the Spirit of God and allowing Him to reshape your desires into the things that God desires. Uh, this is a call to a holy heart led by the Holy Spirit. Well, and like a sailboat blown toward the land of the kingdom of God, the Holy Spirit will move you and your life towards His kingdom. So Paul has challenged us to check his desires, and then he moves right on to say, uh, check your mouth. Check your desires and check your mouth. So just like our desires, Paul now names three ways that speak of speaking that we should avoid. So listen again in verse 4. This is where he says it. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. So let's talk about obscenity for just a moment. In the same warning as a call against sexual immorality, impurity, and greed, Paul then says, watch the way you talk about these things. Uh, in other words, don't say things that are not suitable in r relation to your purity, your sexual life, uh, and your relationship to things that are and are not yours. So obscene talking can be heard as in, in forms of bragging about sexual activity. Uh, by the way, speaking, this would be speaking openly about those things which should be kept in the privacy of a marriage bed between a wife and her husband. Um, it can be found, uh, obscene talking can be heard in objectifying language, meaning you dehumanize another person with your words. This is speaking about people as if they are simply objects for personal gratification. And then it can also be heard in speaking of sinful or shameful acts or desires of any kind as if they were, are acceptable. We see obscene talking in the ways that Scripture warns us that uh, in, in the world, that we will see the world say that evil is good and good is evil. And so obscene talking is even in naming those things which God calls evil as if they are good. So I, I would just tell you, friends, that Paul is warning us that when the world says these things are good and the church is behind the times bigoted and outdated because they don't say these things are good, how dare they? Uh, it is up to you to decide, will you agree with what Scripture would define as obscene language, knowing that you do so at the cost of the inheritance of the kingdom of God? Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now condemn no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just feels like a good moment to remind us of that. Uh, Paul also says foolish talking, which, by the way, uh, in one of my favorite translations to English, just calls this silly talk. I kind of dig that. Uh, but the, the, the original language is, uh, is, is a Greek word, morologia, which, if you really break it down, just means this, stupid talking pretty good. Um, in fact, one of the, at one moment when I didn't complete doing the translation work to get to this point in scripture, I, I had a bit of a chuckle because you break those two down, two, that word down into its two parts, morologia, uh, and for a second I was looking at a definition that said stupid Legos. Um, but then I had to realize that that's not actually what it said. But I have felt at moments where, you know, if you've ever stepped on a Lego with a bare foot, you know what I'm talking about. But this is really talking about our words. Um, the things that are foolish, 
Um, in fact, it's described in places like Proverbs 18, 13, where it says, the one who gives an answer before he listens, this is foolishness and a disgrace for him. That's a good description of morologia. Uh, Proverbs 12, 16, a fool's displeasure is known at once, but whoever ignores an insult is sensible. So, so whereas obscenity is talking about those things which ought not to be said by a Christian, uh, the, the idea of foolish talk is those things which you shouldn't have said because you didn't take time to think about it, right? Uh, so foolish talking is, is what we say before we think. Uh, it's, the, it's the emotionalism, verbalizing our emotionalism, right? Um, it's the, the talking that we tend to do with our thumbs that we really just want people to like so we feel better about what a bad day we had or how dare that barista not put the right kind of milk in our coffee or um, how dare that politician say or do or not say or do or, you know, this group and we villainize people with our, with our words. These, this is foolish talk. This is unwise talk. Remember that what Paul has told us to do with our words is to build others up, right? Uh, we'll, we'll take a look uh, a little bit deeper uh, at that in a moment. Uh, but then the third thing that Paul is saying is no crude joking. Uh, so this is joking about sin. Um, so not only is uh, it's obscene if we call evil good and good evil, but then he says don't even joke about it. So this would be uh, joking about sin, especially sexual sin and, the, and, and, and greed and immorality and impurity in the context of what Paul is saying. Uh, and, but speaking in a way that turns what grieves, heart, what grieves God's heart into a joke. Uh, so this is the person who turns everything into an innuendo. Now, um, I would like to propose to you that it is just as damaging to your soul to say the joke as it is that when your friend at work says the joke that you laugh. So um, I think that verbalizing laughter is its own way of saying, yes, I agree with what you just said. Uh, so be careful, friends, what you choose to find humorous. Uh, I and I actually remember this. I used to watch a lot of comedy when I was uh, coming up in my in my preaching development. I, and I just and it's not a terrible idea to look at stand-up comedians as a as a way to study how to do public speaking because they're some of the world's best storytellers or comics. And I found myself over time beginning to laugh at things that God would grieve if he knew that I was laughing. Of course, he did know that I was laughing at those things. And my verbalizing laughter was as if I was saying, yeah, that is a statement I can get on board with. And then the Holy Spirit convicted me one day and said, I don't think it's very funny that you laugh at those jokes. So I had to go all the way down, not just to not be the guy making the innuendo and the joke and the inappropriate thing where we joke about sin, but am I even entertaining the entertainment of the joke about sin? Uh, so now Paul, just for the record and for clarity, Paul is not saying be boring and never laugh. He is not saying we cannot have fun or crack jokes. Uh, instead, he's painting a picture of a person who says inappropriate things, especially out of emotionalism, a, a person who just cannot be serious, and a person who turns normal conversation into innuendo. Uh, and and uh, so then Paul has already warned us to check our sinful desires. He now says, 
uh, don't even speak about those desires, right? And he gives us the antidote to speaking about our desires. He says, uh, just don't, don't not act on them. Don't even speak about them. Instead, what you should do is, he says, give thanks. You should verbalize thanksgiving, right? Uh, and, and the reason for that is, as we've already said today, because what is in our heart is what we actually believe. Or like James K. A. Smith said, you are what you desire. You are what you want. And Jesus taught this in Luke 6, 45. A good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. So Paul says, instead of speaking of evil things, we should give thanks. Which again is a reminder of what Paul has already said to us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. He said, no foul language should come from your mouth. Remember, we, we talked about this just a few weeks ago. But only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. So here Paul is adding another layer. He's saying, only speak that which builds up the people around you. And then he's adding this other layer. The second thing you can speak is that which gives thanks to God. And, and, and interestingly, um, the word that Paul uses here for that we translate to the phrase give thanks or thanksgiving uh, is the word eucharista, which if you've ever been to a high church service uh, you would, and you've ever taken what we call communion, then you've heard the communion practice or the Lord's table referred to as the Eucharist. Well, that is a word that specifically literally means thanksgiving. So now tie all of that together. Isn't it interesting that Paul would use a word that we tie to a remembrance of the, sal the salvation work of Jesus to our words. What should you be talking about? Well, don't talk about all these things that lead to death. Talk about the salvation you have in Christ. And what kind of language should talking about the salvation you have in Christ lead you to? You should say, thank you, God. So this is what Paul is saying. Instead of speaking about our sinful desires, we should verbalize our thanks to Jesus that he has saved us from the consequences of those desires. And by the way, just on a personal note, when I find myself facing temptation of any kind, being led by malformed desires, I find it incredibly helpful to snap myself back into uh, righteous living and holy talk by simply praying out loud the Lord's Prayer. Or just remember, our Father who art in heaven. And I go, oh, yeah, I have a Father. I should obey him. That usually gets me right there. <laughs> and if not, by the time I get to, but don't lead me into temptation, uh, oh, okay, then I've really figured it out by that point, right? Now, just it's a good reminder to verbalize it. What I'm doing is I'm speaking life to my own righteousness rather than speaking death by verbalizing or following my malformed desires. And yes, it is true that as a pastor, I also, like you, have malformed desires. Welcome to the human race. We will have these malformed desires for the rest of our lives, but thankfully more and more over time our desires can be shaped into the image and desires of God. So, as we move towards the final point of the day, we've been challenged to check ourselves by our desires and by our words. And then finally, in, in, in Paul's version of saying uh, the before you wreck yourself part, he writes, for know and recognize this, every sexually immoral and impure or greedy person who is an idolater 
does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. That's Ephesians 5.5. 5. So then perhaps another way of saying this would be what our third point will be for the day would be to check your status. Are you a recipient of the inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and of God? You might even also think about this, like, check your, check your status. Are you on this flight? Does, does the ticket of your eternal destination say eternity in the kingdom of Christ and of God? Or does it say you're being led to the destination of your own desire? Now, Paul makes it clear what is ext- what's at stake here is our eternal inheritance. Uh, this is fun- a fundamental human problem. Our sin separates us from God. For the record, Scripture makes this clear. It is our sin, our sinful, malformed desires which lead to sinful, malformed choices which separate us from God. It is not that God has handpicked a group of people and said, I hate the rest of you. It's also not even, well, all of those people who subscribe to that idea of living, I hate them and there's no hope for them. That's not it at all. But he has said, but you have chosen something other than me. It is, it is our choice. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 says, Indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save, and his ear is not too deaf to hear. But your iniquities are separating you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. So the prayers of the person that he listens to are not the prayers of the person who have chosen to live according to the world, the flesh, and the devil, but it's the person who would repent from that way of living. Even if you are repenting daily, or as Paul said, dying daily. So here's the point. God wants us to receive an inheritance. I mean, he went to extreme lengths for every single person to be able to receive an inheritance of eternal life in his kingdom. But it is our sinful thoughts, words, and actions, all of those that work to keep us separated from God. Now, the secular argument here, the world's argument here, is a loving God should let everyone who wants to, who believes that they are a good person, In some arguments, depending on who you talk to, he would just let every American or every Westerner into heaven because we all think we're good. And therefore, this is the secular argument, therefore, since the Bible says he doesn't do that, God is not good, and subsequently, God and Christianity cannot be real. The problem with that argument, I mean, fundamentally, there's a lot of problems with that argument, but fundamentally, the problem with that argument is a misunderstanding of Paul and God's intentions. And we could say a lot about that argument, but as we root it in this scripture, Paul, again, is not telling the church to avoid fun, peace, happiness, or joy. He's calling us to the kind of high standard of living that produces real fun, real peace, real happiness, real joy. And real, actual life. He's calling us to a standard of living that is worthy of the holy and perfect king who died in order to save us into eternal life. And the God who created you is the only being in existence who has the right to tell you how to enter into his presence. 
So the world will come up with a thousand ideas for how you can get into the presence of a God who is formed in the image of their desires. But that God will never actually be God because he is always uh, moldable and bendable, changeable at the will of the desires of the people who define him. That can be no God who does not say, these are the standards, they do not change, and if you don't like it, you don't have to spend time with me, but this is who I am. A God who is changeable can be no God. This is why we have Hebrews 13.8 on the wall when you leave. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The argument that says that God is outdated or God needs to catch up with the times is an immoral argument. It's heresy, friends. It is not a Christian argument. And you can, look, again, we'll just say, you can agree with the argument, but you cannot call yourself a Christian and agree with that argument. God does not change. He will not change. What he called sin 2,000 years ago, he still calls sin today. But that does not mean he's inviting us to a boring life. I have, I have, I think probably, I mean, I know it's not a competition, but I know I have the best life. It's not a competition. We won't even spend time debating it. Um, but I know that I have the best life. And friends, I think you could probably say the same. Because you can have all of the enjoyments of friends and fun and family and relationships and enjoy life and not have the weight of sin bearing you down and not have to worry about the question of what really matters and where am I going when this is all over. My life, my life is not just fun and beautiful and good. It's light and enjoyable and free of a lot of worry that the world brings in if I am following the wrong desires. And then let's bring that a little bit further. You have to understand, friends, God is not fishing for people to punish. This is not why he made these rules. He's, he's, he's not saying, okay, let me, let me see who I can catch with my righteousness shotgun, and I, I'm, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. Just you don't step out of line because I'll get you. This is not the desire of God. God is warning us that certain things cannot exist in his presence. And therefore, if we want to spend eternity with God, we cannot marry ourselves to our malformed desires. See, Paul did not write these things because he was small-minded, bigoted, and living behind the times. He wrote these things as a gift of wisdom and as a warning to keep us out of a trap. If we went to the Grand Canyon and you were running towards a cliff, and I yelled at you at the top of my lungs, Stop! Would you turn around and be mad at me for yelling at you? Or would you thank me for having saved your life? And for the record, if you got mad at me for yelling at you, my response would be, you can feel that way but you're welcome that you're alive. God, God is not asking me even whether or not I feel comfortable with his standard. 
He is simply asking me to recognize that his standard is good for me. So God doesn't tell us to avoid sin because he's mean. He does it because he loves us. He wants us to enjoy life, eternal life, which begins the moment you become a follower of Jesus and gets better when you stop breathing oxygen. In his book, The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard wrote, I am thoroughly convinced that God will let everyone into heaven who, in his considered opinion, can stand it. But standing it may prove to be more diff- a more difficult manner, matter than those who take their view of heaven from popular movies or popular preaching may think. The fires of heaven may be hotter than those in the other place. What this is saying is that the presence of God will naturally burn away anything that does not belong in his presence. And if you have framed a life uh, that is so formed by your own desires and the leadership of the world, the flesh, and the devil, that if given the opportunity to choose God or con- or, and to have all of the things burned away that do not belong in the identity that God has given you and spend uh, eternal life in the presence of the most holy, righteous, perfect being in all of existence or to live eternity in the comfort of the desires that you have created and over time recognizing that that in itself is torment because it means you are separated from the God who created and loves you. That many people choosing now would be stuck in those convictions because they could not stand to be in God's presence. Just to prove the argument another way, have you ever felt like you've come to church and you felt uncomfortable because of the call to righteousness? And and everyone's like, yes, right now. This is that moment. Yeah, imagine that for all of eternity. Except what's removed is the fact that you would fall into sin again and need to be convicted. You just get to enjoy the presence of a good God forever. Willard's argument isn't that everybody gets into heaven. It's that everyone gets into heaven who wants to. But there's only one way to get there to live by God's standard and become a follower of Jesus and to remain a follower of Jesus for the rest of your life. So Paul lovingly tells us the kind of people who will enjoy eternal life with God. These are those people who desire him above all else, those people who submit their desires and their words and their actions, every part of themselves who submit their lives to God's desires. Which again is why Paul began this passage by writing, therefore be imitators of God. As dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. So then, having read that passage, we actually can come to the same conclusion today that we came to last week, which would be to ask ourselves some very important questions. You can ask yourself questions like, how are your desires? How are they? Are they holy? Desiring those things that God desires, or are they selfish, desiring 
gratification, desiring comfort over righteousness, desiring the things of the world, the flesh and the devil over the things of God? How is your speech? Not just what do you want, but what do you say? Is your speech pure and full of thankfulness to God? Or is it crude, inappropriate, foolish? Are you overly sarcastic? Do you mock? Do you make light of those things that God calls heavy and serious? How is your speech? And then how is your spiritual status? Are you a disciple of Jesus? I love this idea that, uh, speaking of Dallas Willard earlier, he, he would say that there, were, there was a practice that he had that in the evening he would lay down and he would ask this question of himself and of God, today was I a disciple of Jesus? And he would have to reconcile whether or not in this, in this 24-hour period that he was given, was I following Jesus or was I following my own desires? And he said, to my embarrassment, there are many days where I have to end a day saying, today, I did not behave like a disciple of Jesus. And what he's saying there is not, I'm not a Christian today. I, I got unsaved today. In the same way that you can be enrolled in a school, go to school and intentionally not learn anything because you spent too much time focusing on the people around you my entire school career before college. I was enrolled, but I was not a student. Are you a disciple of Jesus, intentionally following him, or are you following the leadership of the world? So as we wrap up today, I'm going to give you a minute to think and to pray. We're going to leave those questions up on the screen for you. I want you to think about that as you look at those questions. Take a moment and, and process this. Which, which of these questions are the most challenging for you? Not for the person sitting beside you, not for the world around you, but for you. Which one is the most challenging for you? If you, here's another thing you can reflect on. If you were to go and have a conversation about which one of these is the most challenging, who would you go talk to? I don't think it's helpful if, if we say, which of these is the most challenging? And then, and then we go like, okay, one person at a time, starting with Mark over there in the corner. Everybody stand up and say, which one is the most challenging? Uh, tell us how terrible you were yesterday. And then, and then we'll ask God to be gracious and not send you immediately to hell, which can be the way we think about confession of sin, right? But relationally, with a person you trust who will point you back to Christ... Who would you go have a conversation about these questions with? What would that look like for you? If I was going to be your coach and not just a preacher in this moment, I would say, and when will you go have that conversation? When will you do it? I was coaching another pastor the other day. Uh, and he said, I'm going to go do this thing. I'm going to go have a conversation, and I'm going to set a reminder on my phone to do this thing every, every week. And I said, good, when are you going to go have that conversation? He said, today, as soon as we get off the phone. I said, and when will you set that reminder? He said, after I have that conversation. I said, cool, text me when you did it. Accountability.
Good news, he texted me, so we're good. <laughs> uh, last moment of reflection. I'm going to give you a moment, then we're going to pray. I'm going to pray a blessing over you, and then we'll move on with our day. Is this, if, if you were to say that God were inviting you or challenging you to something today based on what you heard, what is the invitation or challenge of the Holy Spirit today? I think certainly for me, I'm reminded when I think of the challenge, the invitation of the Holy Spirit in light of a message like this, I'm reminded of what God said to Joshua before they were about to cross over into the promised land. He said, say this to the people, consecrate yourselves today for tomorrow I will do wonders among you. For me personally, I'm often reminded of that. Am I consecrating myself? It's a word that means clean yourself up and set yourself apart. What is the invitation for the Holy Spirit for you today? God, as we take a moment just to listen to your Holy Spirit for, for one moment, Spirit of God, would you speak today? We are listening. to want to honor you with every part of our lives. Would you help us to make the statement, we honor you, a reality of our lives? God, we obey Paul's instruction today and we turn our language to thanksgiving and so we thank you for the ways that you correct us because you love us. We thank you for the invitation into life and into eternity, which comes only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for moments like this where you challenge us and invite us into something more pure, more holy. Would you help us, God, on the journey? God, would you give us the the kind of sensitive hearts to your word and your Holy Spirit that you desire for us to have. In the places where we have chosen sin, we ask for your forgiveness. And as you call us to repentance, help us to walk towards you and away from the world, the flesh, and the devil. for you to be the ultimate telos, the ultimate aim and destination of our lives. God, we thank you for your grace, which never runs dry, and for your mercies, which are new every day. Take one more moment. If there's anything else left to say to God in this moment before you leave, before you move back on with the rest of your day, if there's anything else you need to say, whether this is a moment of confession before the Lord, saying thank you to him for his word, 
for his grace. Maybe you need to pray for help. Finally, friends, I pray this blessing over you as we send you out into the world as light in a dark place. May you find peace and joy in surrendering your desires to God and embracing what he desires. May your words bring honor to God and blessing to those who hear you speak. May you grow increasingly unsatisfied with the so-called riches of the world. May you see and enjoy the riches of your inheritance in God's kingdom. And as you are blessed in this way, may your life overflow with blessing to those around you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.